Hey there, welcome to Sauce and Bond Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Nadena, head of girls at Sauce Group, a serial acquirer, buying wonderful sauce businesses to take them to the next level. I chat here with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business success. And today with me is Sharon, founder of Boardroom Insiders, one of the leaders in executive intelligence, enabling enterprise sales and marketing teams to close bigger deals faster. She sold the company to a Eurobunny LLC for a whopping $25 million two years ago, right? And is, yeah, and is now openly sharing her experience with other founders, which is absolutely great. Uh, so happy to see you here. Thank you for having me. It's, I love talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems like it. I mean, I, uh, I saw your videos uh, that you posted on LinkedIn. And I thought it was brilliant because, uh, like you said, some of the topics that you bring up are not discussed enough in, in the M&A space. And I think it would be really great to, uh, to bring them on. So, yeah, welcome to the show. And maybe uh, let's start with your background and, you know, the inspiration behind the company. Okay, well, um, I was the first in my family to go to college. So I didn't know anything about business um, and I didn't come to business until very late. I was 30 when I got my first job in business. Prior to that, I, um, I was working as a writer and a journalist and, you know, not making a lot of money. And then I went to grad school. I moved from San Diego, California to San Francisco, got my first job in a startup in the late 90s in San Francisco in the middle of the first internet boom, which was very exciting and um, got really hooked and was not particularly interested in technology. But at that time in the Bay Area, it was coming for you no matter what, <laughs> because you were either, uh, you know, if you were not working in technology, you were technology adjacent. You were serving the people who work in technology or you were providing some kind of service to them. And it just came for everybody in the city. And so it was an exciting time. Um, after that job, I founded my first startup um, for which I raised 3 million in venture capital. Um, and that was tremendous fun, but I raised the money in the middle of the dot-com crash of 2000. Um, and so that did not go well. They tried to claw back the money and tried to sue us for fraud. And it was a big mess And it. It actually killed the company because when you raise that kind of money, you start to scale up. They want you to spend it, right? So we got an office and we got a year's contract for a server farm and we bought a bunch of computers and, um, if we hadn't done that, I could have kept the company going through the downturn. Um, some of our best months of revenue came after they kind of clawed that money back. We were doing okay, but not to the degree that I could absorb the impact of all that scaling without their funding. So then I went off and had babies and um, then there was you know, 9-11 and so there was another huge crash and um, I took some terrible jobs in there that are, I'm not going to talk about, <laughs> but eventually <clears throat> I, I found my way to a former colleague 
at the first startup I worked in, and he was working in tech marketing specifically for big trade shows. So he pulled me into that and we just took off. Um, he was working at different agencies and every time he'd move to a new one, he'd take me with him. And so I was a contractor that whole time, but it gave me access to working with marketers at the biggest tech companies in the world, like Cisco and Microsoft and VMware and Dell and HP. And so um, I learned a ton. Um, it was very exhilarating. And I kept seeing the same problem come up over and over again, which is they wanted the marketers at that companies were starting to say, hey, you know, technology is becoming so fundamental to every company and the deals have become so big, multi-million dollar deals that they're starting to attract the scrutiny of people at the C-level in the company, the CEO, CFO, chief information officer. And we don't know how to sell to those people. It's more of a one-to-one -one relationship building sell. And our salespeople don't know what they want to talk about. They don't want to talk about, you know, here's our latest server. They want to talk about business impact. So I started creating these profiles on C-level executives that the salespeople could use when they would go in to have a conversation with like the CIO of Procter & Gamble or something. And then I figured, oh, I can put these in a database and keep them updated and sell a database subscription product. And I thought, this is going to be great because at the time I had two little kids, I was exhausted. And I thought, I'm going to just sit in my pajamas and people are going to buy these profiles off the web and I'm, all I have to do is keep them updated and I'll outsource all of that. It's going to be great. That didn't happen. Um, nobody came and bought anything, but they started to call me like, hey, what's this website, these profiles you have? So I started experimenting with different business models and how to sell them. And I couldn't afford to quit my day job. So remember, I was still consulting this whole time, like for the first six years of the company. And so it, it was great in one way because I was in front of these customers all day long. So when I would come up with an idea or when they were talking about how do we get into, you know, AT&T, I would be like, oh, look what I've got. I've got these profiles and here's how you use them. So it just started to build momentum. But it wasn't until I took on a business partner in 2010 that I really started getting serious about it being a standalone business because for a while I thought this is just going to be a nice tool for my consulting business but when I met him I thought this is a guy who has a lot of experience that I don't have and I think that him joining will really increase our chance of success of being a standalone company and so that's what happened and you know we didn't raise any money aside from some friends and family money so we were just bootstrapping. And so we developed um, some very talented bootstrapping strategies um, that in retrospect, after reflecting for two years on what I went through, there's a lot of things that you learn how to do really efficiently when you have to bootstrap because you just have no other option. Um, so that's what a lot of my content is about that I put out on TikTok to try to help other entrepreneurs who probably come from non-traditional backgrounds like I did and think they can't do it to show them, well, you can, and here are some ways that you can work around um, not being able to raise funding, for example. That's Sorry, a fascinating story. Yeah, I love it. Okay. So um, my next question was supposed to be like, 
were you building with an exit in mind? Because obviously, like now, you mostly talk about uh, what what you went through with an exit, but I guess that wasn't really the case. Well, when when my partner joined in 2010, and this is a tip, you really want to make sure if you take on a partner that you're on the same page with the with the exit, right? <laughs> um, because our business could have gone a different direction. It was what, it, after quite a few years, like eight or nine, it could have just been what we call a lifestyle business. By that point, we were able to pay ourselves a decent amount. We could run it how we wanted. We were having fun. We had a great team. We had actually, we didn't hire anybody full-time until 2016. Like that's six years with just us and some contractors. So we were having a blast because we finally had some really fun people in the boat with us. Um, and we had, uh, it was like a little family. We just had a blast. So we could have just kept it going that way. But it kept growing and growing. We were successful, which we were very fortunate. We, um, you know, after a little dip at the beginning of COVID where we thought, oh, we're, we're going to be in a problem because, you know, people pulled back deals or delayed deals that we thought were coming in. But ultimately, COVID was great for us because suddenly all these executives couldn't travel and they were stuck in their house and they were trying to shore up their partnerships and their customer relationships to make sure that, that the companies were going to be able to survive throughout COVID. So an executive would sit in front of Zoom for 10 hours and have 10 different customer meetings versus being on a plane for five hours and having one or two customer meetings. So suddenly they needed all this material about the people they were meeting with. So it was good for our company. And once that happened, the same dynamic that was happening over in the exit industry, whatever you want to call it, PE firms, strategic acquirers, they were all starting to look down market. So they used to look at companies that were 10 million and above. We were close to five. They started looking at smaller companies because there were not enough deals done in 2020 and they had all this money to put somewhere. So we started getting approached a lot by, from PE firms, M&A firms, and people in that realm. And so we really started to think this could, this, this could happen sooner than we think. So one day I was sitting back there in South Carolina because we were like a bi-coastal company. And I got a call from a PE firm that we had talked to before. And I said to them, because we were doing really well at this point, it was 2021. And I said, you know, we're going to keep our heads down and keep growing the business. We're not really interested in talking right now. And he said, well, that's too bad because I could give you a term sheet for 48 million today. And I was like, whoa. And so um, I hung up <laughs> and I looked at my partner. I said, okay, that's the first time anyone's ever put out a number. And I think we need to think about this because we both had this feeling like the crash was coming. We just knew it. You could just feel it. Things were too frothy for too long. And, you know, we we're still, the world was still feeling the impact of COVID. 
And so I called an advisor of mine, the guy who gave me some angel funding in the beginning, and he's had many exits. He knows what he's doing. And at the time, I didn't even really understand the difference between a PE firm and an M&A firm. Like, I didn't know anything. I was just focused on running the business. And so I called him and I said, oh, my gosh, we just got this guy who said um, he might be able to give us a, a term sheet for $48 million. And he said, Sharon, they are full of shit. He said they will throw out a big number to get you all excited. And then, you know, you'll go down the road with them and they'll start chipping away at the price. They're going to find things wrong with your business that justifies chipping away at the price. And he said, then you're, they're going to have you down to 20 million and you'll just take it because you're worn down. So he said, if you want to really sell the company right now, you need to hire an M&A banker and run a process. So I was like, OK. And I didn't really know what that meant. So I went into my partner, who's more experienced in this stuff, and I said, what does this mean? And he said, an M&A banker is like a realtor for your company. You hire a realtor to find you a buyer for your house. You hire an M&A banker to find you a buyer for your company. And he said the reason why he wants us to run a process is because you would never just negotiate individually with all the people interested in your house, and you shouldn't do the same with the company because you won't get the best outcome. So my partner told me, you are the one with the most to gain and the most to lose from this whole thing. He said, you need to run this, even though he knew more and he was focused on our sales, which was important. So I educated myself. I interviewed a bunch of bankers and then I interviewed a bunch of references for each banker and selected a firm and we were off to the races. And then it was four months, what they call hire to wire, which I think is just the cutest phrase. Hire the banker, <laughs> wire the money. Four months from start to finish. This episode is sponsored by Rewardful.com. Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage, and scale for SaaS companies. Log your customer acquisition cost and only pay affiliates based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Building a successful affiliate program can be a little bit intimidating figuring out where to get started. That's where Rewardful has taken what they've observed from their most successful customers' affiliate programs and distilled that into an exclusive online course. The exciting part? Their affiliate marketing course is absolutely free. And by joining the waitlist today, you'll get early access to it as soon as it goes live. Join the waitlist at rewardful.com slash course, rewardful.com slash course, and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. That's, uh, that's great that it went that way for you. Okay. So, um, like you said, you know, um, you need to you need to choose who you're working with. You need to choose your acquirer. How did you do that? Like, did you also run due diligence? Because obviously you did one with your M&A bank banker. Uh, did you run due diligence on the companies that were coming on to you and kind of keeping the relationships going? Uh, did you go back to those who approached you or did you start actively looking for somebody else and, you know, seeing if there is more cultural value alignment uh, and price alignment, of course. 
I actually thought the M&A process was a blast. I mean, it got really crazy at the end and there was, you know, some yelling and some tears and stress, but I, for the most part, I loved it. I thought it was so interesting. And whenever, you know, the M&A firm, what they do is they just start prospecting. They reach out to this, these companies and they have a list of like 200 or so companies. Half of them are PE firms that would just buy a majority stake and then, you know, they usually keep you on and give you some targets to hit. And then half are what we call strategics, which are companies that, you know, want you as part of their business. So they're already in the, you know, executive engagement business and they, they want you and they know you, right? So every week the M&A bankers give you an update on who they've reached out to, who has declined and who's interested. And then sometimes they ask you to do like what's called a management presentation if someone's interested and you actually don't present anything. You just sit there and ask, answer questions and talk about your business. And so we only got to management presentations with a handful of companies. And so um, I can say this now, but we only got one offer. Um, and it was from, you know, Euro money. Of course, you don't tell them that at the time you want the bankers, what they do is they make it seem like, you know, there are all these offers coming in and um, that's part of the game that they play to make sure that you get the best deal. Um, so I already knew this company quite well because they had bought up four companies that were in our space um, and we were the fifth. So I was familiar with them. And the nice thing about it was they were a public company at the time. And so I could go and read all their earnings call transcripts and see exactly what they paid for those other four companies and see, you know, how, what, what the multiple was, the multiple of revenue, which is what they used to value the deals. It was like, imagine the best book you've ever read. And you're like, oh, that was me when I was researching them and reading their earnings calls and I was making notes and, you know, sending emails to my partner. And, um, I, I kind of knew that that was going to be a great fit for them and for us. Um, so I was super excited. Okay. All right. So you, since you, uh, touched upon the, the pricing, right. And this is something that again, not so many founders are confused about because someone says, you know, you just have to go and research, like what were the deals done by the, you know, by the strategic acquirer, for example, that offers to buy your company or, you know, similar, uh, deals in the market or, you know, base it on your, on, on some benchmarks of the industry. Uh, so you just went, because you had this one offer you did you kind of estimate the price based on what they did before or did you have some other you know factors that went into it well the deals they did before if i remember correctly at least three out of four of them were like one-time revenue or like at the most like one and a half that's not what they were offering us they were offering us quite a bit more than you know, our multiple was higher that they came back with, but it wasn't enough. Like it just wasn't enough because if we had sold what they were, if we had sold for what they offered initially, my partner and I would both probably just have to go get a job somewhere. I mean, it was like still a lot of money, but you know, we're not 
80 years old, like hopefully we'll live a few more decades and we have kids in college and all this stuff. So it's, if you're going to sell it, you got to sell it for a life changing amount of money that if you never make another dime, you're going to be okay. You know, and if you plan and invest, right. So, and what they were offering, it, it was, it I don't think I should say this because I probably, yeah, that's probably, I probably signed some confidentiality agreement for this, but suffice it to say, it just wasn't enough. I was really kind of crushed because I thought, oh, this isn't going to work out. And I called my advisor, the one who uh, uses the salty language about PE firms. And I said, I'm just, I'm just really bummed out. This just isn't enough. It's not going to work for me. It's not going to work for my partner. And he said, well, what do you want? And I said, I want 30 million. Like, that's what I want. And he said, go get it, go tell him. And so I said something to the banker about it. He's like, I, I, that just seems far fetched that they're going to agree to that. They're going to walk away. And I said, well, then let him walk away because I just knew that wasn't going to be enough. And so I didn't want to settle. So he went back to them. So I thought about that. And so what I decided to do is write him an email and I wrote him exactly the justification for the extra money. And at one point this buyer had said, you know, you guys are like, we, we've acquired these other four companies and you guys, that's, that's going to complete our portfolio and we can consolidate into like a, a phenomenal platform with, with you guys in the mix. So I thought about that. And so that's what I wrote. I said, you know, we know that we're the linchpin here for this whole new business unit and you need this deal. And so you should be willing to pay 30. And I sent it to my banker and I'm like, Robert, this is exactly what I want you to say to them. And that's why I wrote it down, because I want you to say exactly this. So I don't know what he did or if he did it, but he he came back and he um, with an offer for twenty five. So um, now that was a number that worked for both me and my partner. And, you know, if I hadn't asked for it, I wouldn't have gotten it. So that I, I would recommend for every entrepreneur, if you go through this process, like really know what your walk away number is and don't be afraid to ask for it because it is a total game, you know, and everyone will be like, Oh my gosh, that's so much more. I don't know if we can do it. And then they go back and they probably say like, we really need this deal for our new business unit. So give her, go back and offer her 25, you know? Um, so, yeah. and actually it was exhilarating and a little bit fun um, only because it worked out, <laughs> but um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just learned a ton through that process and I enjoyed it. Not right. Does. Yeah. I think, I think the worst case scenario where, you know, the business can, can see itself is having to sell and not having the power, you know, to make a decision and to, to price yeah. uh, the business at, at the price they want. Um, so I think um, what you did was very smart. Uh, okay. So uh, obviously you went through, due diligence as well with them. And I mean, I guess it was mutual, right? What was the most challenging and maybe the most surprising part of the due diligence process? I think the most surprising part to me was when I talked, I talked to maybe 12 or 15 entrepreneurs 
when I was interviewing for the M&A bankers, you know, I talked to their references. So those were the most valuable conversations I've, I had. And um, their experience with the process was all over the map. But universally, they all said, oh, my gosh, due diligence is a nightmare. Just prepare yourself. It's going to take 100% of your time, 150% of your time. And it's painful and awful. And so um, I was gearing up for that, but it was never that bad. I mean, the, it, it was more irritating. And here's what's irritating is you have your bankers start collecting documents for due diligence even before they found a buyer. So they have this data hub where they're like, okay, we need all these things. And it's, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of documents that they need, your business formation stuff, your marketing material, like everything, your customer list, your financials. And so um, you're just, you know, I spent weeks just uploading, finding and uploading documents. Um, and then in comes the buyer with their lawyers and their consultants and everybody else and they want the same documents, but for some reason, the bankers don't really give the, you, you just have to go through the whole thing again. Like you're up, uploading the same thing somewhere else. And then um, the lawyers come in and they're like, okay, we want this information now in this format. And it's something you've already given them two or three times, but they want it in a different format. So then you have to make a spreadsheet of the same stuff you sent before. So this just went on for weeks and weeks and I was the person doing it. And I um, I don't like to do any paperwork. It's my pet peeve. And here I was like the paperwork person and that was frustrating, but you know, you're excited about it. So it kept me going. That sounds a little bit crazy. That's for sure. All right. So how were you preparing like yourself and the team and the whole company for the sale? Because, well, um, usually these deals are not really communicated with the team. And uh, what really helps is kind of, you know, making the founder obsolete to make sure, you know, none of the operational stuff is affected during the deal, during the due diligence. So how did you um, deal with that? Did anyone else know in the company, like what's going on? And um, yeah, did it affect your operations in any way? Well, there were a number of things going on, like, and everybody tells you, you know, don't count your money before it happens. My advisor told me there's, don't get too excited. There's a 50% chance this isn't going to close. Don't spend any money or buy anything. You know, he, he was worried about setting my expectations. And so that was the first thing. The second thing is you have to run the company as if the deal is not happening. Because if it doesn't happen, you have to go on and you, you should be continuing with your strategic objectives and projects that you've laid out. So um, while this was heating up, like we, we I think I was interviewing M&A bankers starting in July, but in June, we brought on an operations guy who had some great experience at helping startups build leadership teams and be more um, disciplined about how they 
roll out strategic initiatives, right? So we brought him in in June and we built our first leadership team. And these were people who were already at the company. But what we were trying to do is just push down more of the responsibility to these people, empower them, and also begin to work together to envision the future of the company and prioritize what we needed to do to get there, right? So simultaneously, this was happening. So I was interviewing bankers already, but we didn't have an offer or anything. And we were building this leadership team and it went really well. Like people just took responsibility and we were doing all kinds of interesting initiatives and things and it was going really well. And then even before that, we did one thing that I think was really important, which we put together what's called a phantom equity plan for our employees. And it's, <clears throat> it's a little bit like a stock option plan, but it's much simpler, less expensive, easier to understand and explain. And so um, every year, once we could afford to, we started rolling out one new benefit a year. We would tell our employees about it at our last meeting in December, and then we'd roll it out in January. So December, 2020, all these firms are reaching out to us and my partner and I, my partner had done this at a previous company and it worked out really well. So we decided that we would roll out a phantom equity plan to our team in December, 2020. So we had our big end of the year meeting. We said, Hey guys, you know, I don't know if we've talked about this with all of you, but it is our intent to sell the company someday. We don't know if it's going to be next year or five years or 10 years, but we want to be ready and one of the things we want to do is put, you know, take a small percentage of the net proceeds and distribute it to the employees. And we told them that the reason why we thought it was important to talk about this is we wanted everyone to know what our intent was so that nobody's speculating. And we also told them like to get a good price when you sell, the most important thing is your annual recurring revenue. So as a company next year in 2021, we need all hands on deck, just driving towards that. And you're going to hear that from us. And that's why, and it would be important anyway, whether we sell or not, but it's super important um, if we sell. So we did that. Then we built the leadership team and then we started interviewing the bankers. And then one of the things that I asked everybody I talked to was, should we tell our employees that we're doing this? And everybody said no. And that kind of went against our culture because we were super transparent culture. I think from my videos, you can see how transparent I am. And, um, so that was hard because I don't like to feel like I'm keeping something big from people. But what I was told is people are going to be distracted. They're going to be terrified. They're going to lose their jobs. And then if you tell them and it doesn't happen, then it's going to be like, why did we even go down this road and distract everybody for six months? Right? So we didn't tell anybody except the leadership team. We did tell them because we were going, we thought they should know. And also we were going to need their participation in due diligence because what we were basically doing with creating that team is we were creating department heads. And so, you know, like the due diligence around our product, 
that would need to come from the product guy because I don't have that insight anymore because I passed it on to somebody else, right? Um, so we did tell them, we asked them to keep it confidential. And it's really a good thing that we made that decision because we ended up being bought by a public company, you know, and that, that adds a little layer of like, you know, you can't have people talking about it or speculating who it is or any of that. We, but we didn't tell our leadership team who the buyer was. We told them when we had a potential buyer, we said, look, we have an offer. We've accepted it. Now we're going into due diligence. It could still fall apart. So we still need to keep operating as if it's not happening. And we're going to ask for your participation in pulling documents and data together. So um, that's how it worked. Right. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's what we keep seeing in, in, in deals. Mostly founders don't really communicate this. Uh, it's the leadership, the leadership team, as you said. But it's, uh, yeah, sometimes not even, you know, like you said, the product information comes from a product guy. Usually it is just a CEO and a CTO. Um, but yeah, it turns out that you had a bit more people invested in it. All right. So, um, I mean, the video that kind of drew me to this, uh, to this interview and, you know, gave me a perception that this is going to be, you know, something a bit more unique because uh, founders mostly don't talk about this. You just went out there very transparently uh, and made a video about, you know, how much money you actually made. Uh, and whenever there is a podcast, this is kind of like the only thing that gets avoided in discussions. Um, so and uh, one other video, uh, you also said, well, at first you just wanted to be just under the radar and not talk about it. So that changed, right? Um, so why did you start talking about this? And maybe you could go a little bit uh, in detail again of um, how much money, yeah, actually ended up in your bank account and how it was distributed. Um, and maybe, you know, if you have an advice or like a hack or a tip for the founders on how to look at this kind of transactions, uh, maybe you could share it too. Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just do the run through the figures first. So it was, it was 25 million in cash, which I didn't even realize how great that was until later. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what we did. Like we traded off kind of a lower valuation for a cleaner deal without any ambiguity of like earnouts or anything like that. Um, and in the end that was the right type of deal for us. Um, and so the M&A bankers fees were like 1.035 million. And that's with all the bankers I interviewed, it was going to be pretty much the same. They take a percentage and that percentage goes up the more they get for you. You know, so they're incentivized to get more because then they get a bit bigger chunk. But we were in the bottom tier of what they expected to get, so that wasn't an issue. So they got 1.035 million. Um, our attorneys got 200,000. Our accountants, 51,000. Um, I was the majority shareholder, so I got pre-tax a little under 13 million. The rest of the shareholders, um, you know, again, these were not just people who put in money, but 
uh, one person who put in a lot of sweat equity in the beginning. Um, they got a total of nine and a half million. And then we had um, around 800,000 that was uh, in the phantom equity pool. And how that works is you decide when you put the agreement together. So we had done that over a year earlier, kind of, you, you basically have 6,000 units or something, you know, you, an arbitrary number, and then you dole them out to individual people based on their seniority and their contribution to the business. So, you know, we had some people who had been with us for five years and were leaders in the company. They're going to get more than someone who has been there two years and is in more, more of a junior role. Right. So, um, that pool was close to 800,000. And so then it was time to pay taxes. <laughs> I ended up paying 3.8 million in state and federal tax on just under 13 million. So I walked away with about 9 million and that adds up to 30% tax. And I think a lot of people were surprised, but then a lot of people were also like, you paid too much in tax. So it was never, a couple of people said, I think you paid the right amount. Some people said you paid, you paid a lot less than, than I thought. And I'm shocked. And other people said, you paid so much more and you should have taken this other deduction and your accountant was probably an idiot. And so the feedback on the taxes almost made me wish like, Oh God, what have I, I've opened this Pandora's box, but then I spoke with my accountant and got clear on everything that we did and why. And I made another video, just actually I made two more videos just about taxes. And one of the videos was just about like, I am in California. <laughs> and, you know, I talked about all the things I did to minimize my taxes, but also it was a lot of luck. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So what would be your best advice uh, to founders who are looking at the exit? Uh, they want to, you know, to price their company right. They want to get out of it alive and sane and uh, hopefully with some sleep. Um, yeah. What would, what would you recommend doing? Um, well, I think that two, three years before you think it might happen, you should hire a fractional CFO if you don't have a, an in-house CFO. I mean, we're talking to founders today who probably are from under a million to, I don't know, a hundred million. And so if you're at a hundred million, you probably have a CFO. I don't know, maybe not. But regardless, you need a fractional CFO and you need it years before because they work with you to create um, forecasts and they do scenario planning. So like, you know, if you have a great sales year, a middling sales year or a terrible year and, and what they do is they just, it's, it's like they put you on a plan and that plan gives you permission to spend because one thing that I think my partner and I would do because of our personal backgrounds and our, the fact that we had no money, we just would hold on to our capital. Like we were often afraid to invest. And so I loved having this fractional CFO because he's like, I'm here to give you permission to spend. I mean, doesn't that sound awesome? Um, and he does it all through forecasting. 
So he's like, if you hit these revenue targets, you can afford to hire these people and you can afford to spend this much on trade shows this year, right? So you're not just shooting in the dark. You have a plan and you execute to that plan. And as long as the revenue side is there, everything else is going to be there. I mean, you might have cash flow issues, which we ran into a couple times, but the money is coming for all of those things you want to invest in. So that is very important. Um, and then, you know, another thing, and this is little, but the reason why I think I didn't hate due diligence as much as, as a lot of people is because I had a partner who was a maniac about paperwork and making sure everything is organized and where it should be. He forced me to do it. I am terrible at that. Thank God he did because when we had to provide all those documents, they were kind of easy to find. And I did talk to founders who exited who were more like me and they just had everything in a shoebox or in random files on their computer or, you know, attached to an email. And they were in so much pain. They were in agony. So that's the thing, like from day one, I don't care what you have to do. If you're not a paperwork person like me, have someone on your team and that's that's their job. So that's super important, but boring. And then um, talk to other entrepreneurs. I didn't build my network when I was running the company. I built it with people who would be our customers, but those people are not entrepreneurs. They're enterprise marketers or enterprise salespeople. So had I been building a network of entrepreneurs, I would have been able to ask questions on my LinkedIn. But as it was, I had to, because I don't, I don't know any entrepre entrepreneurs here in San Francisco who are in my category, right? So who had exited. So it was, it was, I had surprisingly few people to talk to, even though I had been an entrepreneur for 20 years. So um, the best conversations I had were with the references that the M&A firms gave me. I talked to entrepreneurs all over the country, all of whom had exited and some who were super savvy about exits and had done it before, some who knew nothing about finance or M&A and did it for the first time. And I talked to people who had tried to do a deal by themselves without a banker at first, and they failed. And then, and when you do that, you can't just go right back out to the market. You kind of have to wait a while. Um, it's kind of like, again, real estate. You kind of go dark for a little bit, and then you come back out with a banker, and then with the banker, they were successful. And so I do highly recommend interviewing M&A bankers. Um, I, I highly recommend using an M&A banker. And then another thing that we did is, um, and I think this is just the way it works, but I didn't know, I'd never done it before, is um, we found our law firm first before we found the banker. Because my partner had somebody who had a firm that they recommended. So we went to this firm before we had hired a banker, before we even were interviewing them. And we said, okay, we're going to do this process. Who have you worked with on similar size deals? Who would you recommend? And that's just a great way to go because they have to actually work very closely with the banker and they know if they're doing a good job or not. And so the law firm recommended like five, four or five bankers that we talked to. 
And the other thing that the law firm did is they did a review of all of our paperwork before we even hired the banker to tell us if we were missing anything. Because then that, that would give us time to create whatever that paperwork was. Um, so things like, you know, your your bylaws and your articles of incorporation and your shareholders agreement, like they just do an audit of all that stuff. And they actually do it for no cash outlay, just with the understanding that when you do a deal, they're going to be your, your legal team, right? So it was great because we didn't have to pay a bunch of money for that up front. And um, because it's, it's perfectly conceivable that we would have interviewed a bunch of bankers and that they would look at our financials and they would decline to represent us. And we could have found out that we were not ready to sell because we had, you know, we didn't have a good customer renewal rate or we didn't have, you know, whatever it was. The fact of the matter, we did have good things. And so three different bankers were competing for our business. But um, it was a, a really lucky that um, I had a partner who insisted on being super organized and that we talked to enough people that we kind of knew how to approach it. Um, I think we, we were always served well by asking for recommendations from people in our networks who we trusted. So I'm trying to think if there's anything else I would recommend. Oh, you've got to have your leadership team in place and have started that transfer of responsibility and authority and budget authority inclusive because you want to set your team up for success after the sale. And you also want to look good. You want to put your best foot forward with your buyer. So if it's me and my partner answering every question down to like little minutiae, they might be concerned like, well, how, how solid is, if we get rid of these two, how solid is this team going to be? Are they going to be able to run the business? And so you want them to see that, yes, without me and my partner, the team's going to be able to run the business. And we accomplished that in like six months. And it's because they were really good. And it's also because we worked really hard at it. And it was a little bit rocky in the beginning, like me letting go of some things, but ultimately, you know, all I would have to do is like, think about it and be like, okay, oh, I can't do this. This is not my job anymore. So um, then when we transitioned out of the business, they were free to just run it and they knew how, because they had already been doing it. And so I think that sets your team up for success because I can't imagine if they weren't running everything and then they went into this new ownership and maybe were unable to answer key questions about their department, for example. So if you care about your team, which I did greatly, um, you should really do that. Okay. I think those are great pieces of advice. Thank you so much for sharing. And I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating story. I, I love that we went into a bit more details with this because like I said, m and deals are not the most transparent deals out there. And uh, sometimes a lot of, I mean, sometimes I talk to founders who cannot even tell me the name of the company that they sold. And um, yeah, how are you going to educate people on, on exiting if, you know, there is absolutely nothing that you can share? And I think, uh, well, just by the discussions that we've had with, with lots of 
um, M&A experts. And, uh, you know, uh, I talked to the CEO of Flippa.com, which is one of the biggest marketplaces to sell your digital assets. They all think that, well, 2023 was kind of like the beginning of a big M&A uh, wave. So we are expecting 2024 to be like really um, booming with with deals. So it's just crucial to, to, to get it out there and to give founders some understanding like what they should do. So thank you for you know, putting out so much content, great content about it and being so transparent about it. I really enjoyed our conversation. So thank you so much for being here. Me too. Um, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to tell the story and get this information in front of more entrepreneurs around the world uh, because it's really an uncomfortable feeling going into something like that where you don't know, you don't have the experience and so the more information you can get from others, the better. For sure. So yeah, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Anytime. And take care. That was yet another awesome conversation on SaaS Unbound. We're always looking for new guests to share their experiences. We mostly talk with bootstrapped SaaS founders. And if you're one, reach out to me directly at anna at saas.group or find me on LinkedIn. If you're not bootstrapped or even not SaaS, but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS Group, a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit saas.group, fill in the form, and expect a response in under 24 hours.